Well, it's good to be here together. I remember a, a, a pastor who was on the verge of retirement was, was preaching, and I was hearing him preach, and he said, you know, in, in staff meeting, we need to teach the young guns a thing or two. So he said in the, in the staff meeting, he would ask the young pastors what they're doing this week. And they said, well, we, we have to preach. And he goes, have to preach? You get to preach. You get to preach. It's a joyful thing to do that. This morning, we get to preach. It's a good morning, isn't it? We get to hear from God's word. It's a good thing to look at God's word together. And we get to do that. What a joy to look at Psalm 73. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73, we're going to look at that together. Since it's a long psalm, we're going to read it as we go through the passage and as we preach, as I preach through that passage. I'm going to start off with the first three verses and then I'll pray. Psalm 73, verse 1. It says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Let's pray together. God, we know that you are good to us. We know that you speak to us through your word. You've provided that as a gift for us. And we get to look at your word and study your word and read your word together as your people and be changed and transformed by it. Pray that you would speak clearly to us. Open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might see the beauty of your word and what you have to say to us through Psalm 73. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on a few occasions, I've walked by our Brown House offices right here in the north parking lot, and sometimes I'll see a huge couch or a big bench or a mattress or some kind of large random object in front of the brown house. And I stand there a little confused and then I realize uh, our junior high ministry, of course, of course, they've been doing an event called Bigger and Better. They start with something like a penny. They go out into the neighborhood. They go on uh, to the door. They knock on the door and they say, hey, can I, can I trade you this penny for something bigger and better than a penny? So maybe they end up with a cup. Then they go to the next house, knock, knock, knock. Can I have something that's bigger and better than a cup? Maybe they end up with some kind of book, and then maybe they end up with some kind of lamp, and then a a tire, and then you see how it goes, and that's why we end up with a bunch of couches and a bunch of mattresses in front of the brown house randomly. Bigger and better. It's that quest. Who can find what is bigger and better? Well, that event, I think, actually depicts in some way a lot of how our culture really does live Life. Many are on that same very quest, on the quest for what is bigger and on the quest for what is better. What can we find that is bigger and better in life? You know, comparing ourselves to others, it can often feed a sense of jealousy and bitterness. We think about maybe of what we don't have and we look out at others at what they do have, and we say, I want to have what is better. I maybe want what they have. I want what is bigger. We think, I need to go to the best college. I need to have the best toys. I need to have the best car. I need to have the best house. I need to have the best life. 
We always want what's better. And when somebody else has that, sometimes we can get frustrated. Sometimes we can get bitter. Sometimes we can get jealous in that time. But we're confronted with truths in Scripture that really give us this reality. We have to ask ourselves this question. Is is life with God actually better? Is life with God actually better than anything that this world can offer us? You know, surely there's this truth that following God is, is right. It's, it's the right thing I think a lot of Christians can maybe think about. But I think there's some confusion with Christianity and with following God. Is following God actually better? Not just the right thing to do. Is it better? We have to ask ourselves these questions because sometimes we can think about our relationship with God, our faith with God, just as simply rules or simply as duty. And when that happens, it ends up that we have a lifeless and empty faith. And when the weight of trials or suffering or injustice come our way, bitterness and jealousy can flood our hearts as we see other people enjoying life that we might not have and we feel as though we're stuck or missing out. Or we can have a sense of entitlement in our relationship with God saying, God, I've lived for you all these years. I've obeyed you in all of these different ways. You owe me at least a little bit, God. Surely you owe me. I was reminded this week of uh, John Calvin and how he talked about the Psalms. He said, in essence, what we see in here is the anatomy of the soul. It's that there's real emotions, there's real experiences of God's people here. And in Psalm 73, it's, it's no different than that. We see a picture of a real struggle and wrestle of a godly man wrestling with God about his relationship with God. We saw that in verses 1 to 3. He says, hey, truly God is good. That's, the, that's how he, con- he concludes. But he's going to give us insight into this, this wrestle, this struggle that he has. He says, I'd almost stumbled. I nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant. Surely God is good. But this psalm points us to where we are to go, to what we are to do when we are in the midst of wrestling with God, when we are in the midst of jealousy and maybe bitterness in our hearts, what do we do? Where do we go? Is it worth it to follow God? Is it better to follow God? What about you this morning? What would describe your perspective about life with God? Or what would describe your heart in relationship to God? Because life may have thrown you huge curveballs or challenges and difficulties could be weighing down upon you. Relational dysfunction, difficulty at work, spiritually stagnant in your life, feeling bodily frailties. And maybe you're here this morning and you're frustrated or you're bitter or you're jealous. And the truth from this psalm is that we're in the right place. We're in the right place this morning, worshiping with God's people, looking at God's word together. And I believe God wants for us, as we look at his word, to shape and transform our perspectives and our hearts so that we could see him rightly and see even our own lives rightly in our relationship with him. We're going to see kind of two big sections here in Psalm 73, verses 3 to 15. We're going to see a distorted perspective and hardened heart. 
But in verses 16 to 28, we're going to see a restored perspective and transformed heart. There's a huge shift right in the middle of the psalm that we'll get to there. So let's dive in. We're going to read verses 3 to 12 here. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So a distorted perspective and a hardened heart. The psalmist Asaph He's looking at those who aren't following God and then he's looking at his own life and he's saying things, things don't match up. Things don't seem to be right. His experience of life is in direct contrast to those who are not living for God and their experience. And he has this perceived reality of how they're living versus how he's living. And two things are clearly distorting his perspective and feeding that and clearly hardening his heart. And it's two things. It's jealousy and it's bitterness. This first thing, jealousy. Just look again verse, through verses 3 to 12. We won't read it, but we'll kind of summarize it again. It says, the, the wicked, they're living in prosperity here. They're living in arrogance. He seems and thinks as though they're not experiencing the pains and the frustrations of life that this psalmist knows all too well. He says in verse 6 that they're living fully in pride and they know it. They have no shame in the way that they are living. Their tongue, the way that they speak, is filled with arrogance and pride. And even in verse 10, people see the way that they're living and are even kind of starting to, to follow in with them. And verse 11 tells us of this posture that they have towards God in total resistance, total rebellion, total rejection of God. And it seems as though there's no consequence at all to the way that they're living. I don't have to have any responsibility towards God. In his mind, that's what he's seeing. Basically, nothing goes wrong in his mind. They can say what they want, do what they want, treat others how they want, have a total disregard of life, and live in complete contentment and ease and growing in riches. Verse 12 summarizes it all right there. The psalmist is jealous He sees their life and he sees his life. A perceived independence, a perceived prosperity, a perceived disregard of God, indulgence in anything I want. And in some ways he's thinking I'm missing out. I'm missing out on the good life. I'm being held back. I'm being restricted. They have it all and I have nothing. And this jealousy is distorting his vision and hardening his heart toward God. I remember when I was at the University of Texas and I was studying the Bible with some guys and there was this one guy who was there and he would meet together with other Christians on campus, very open about some of the struggles that he was having in his faith with God. And he said he was looking at his life 
And then he looked at a lot of his friends who were joining fraternities, who were living in kind of the normal party lifestyle on a big public university, and he said, I'm missing out. I'm missing out. This isn't, this isn't really worth it for me to, to live this way. They're all having fun, and I'm being restricted by doing this. They're enjoying the good life, and I'm not. They're enjoying freedom, and I'm being held back. He grew more and more discontent with his life. So he started to integrate himself into that same trajectory and in that same lifestyle because jealousy overtook him. And what happened is it started to push him further and further and further away from God. In his mind, his relationship with God was about duty. He says, it's restricting me. It's holding me back from enjoying life truly. And it led him away on a path of the world further away from God. Truth is, no one's denying that the ways of the world do bring about momentary pleasure. That's a reality. But are we missing out? Are we truly missing out? Is it what our souls were created for? Does it actually satisfy? Does it actually fulfill us, this way of the world, this good life? It causes us to evaluate really our own desires in our, in our own hearts to say, are we being swept away with jealousy of the things other people might have? It could be financial, could be relational, could be jobs. But do we have that sense that we are missing out on this good life that they are living? A perceived independence and prosperity in that way. But it's not only jealousy that's eating away at his soul, but it's also bitterness. Bitterness is feeding this distorted perspective. And he almost says, not only does he feel like he's missing out, but he also thinks in some ways, it's not worth it to follow God. It's not worth it. Look at verse 13. It says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 13, he looks away from the prosperity of the wicked and he actually looks to his own life. He says, God, I've been living in obedience towards you. I've been following you. I've been staying away from this. I've been keeping my heart clean. And these other people haven't been doing it at all. They're living in rebellion. They're living in rejection. They're living in resistance towards you and towards your ways. And they're totally carefree. They're at ease. They're prospering. And I'm the one who's stricken and rebuked. He starts to be filled with this bitterness. He says, I'm doing everything right. They're doing everything wrong. And I'm the one that's suffering. And experiencing the consequences, it seems. He says he doesn't want to voice these frustrations and bitterness because he knows that if he does that in front of God's people, it will spread like wildfire. It would not be good for God's people to hear that. But he brings it to God in an honest way. Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, describes uh, two musicians from the play Amadeus. One is Salieri and the other is Mozart. Salieri is totally distorted view of a relationship with God. He believes life with God is all about duty and that God somehow owes him and and should give him a certain type of life because of the way that he is living. So he makes this vow to God that he'll keep his hands off women, that he'll use his gifts 
that he'll teach many people, that he'll even serve the poor, and his career starts to go well. And then Mozart steps on to the scene, who is far more gifted than him, starts to have much more success, but he's living a very vulgar and self-indulgent lifestyle. And Salieri's fed up and he says this. He says, it's incomprehensible. Here I was denying all my natural lust in order to deserve God's gift. And there's Mozart indulging his in all directions, even though he's engaged to be married. And there's no rebuke at all. And he ends by saying this. He says to God, from now on, you and I were enemies. See, in his mind, he was doing everything right. Mozart was doing everything wrong and his heart started to be filled with bitterness and jealousy and it ate away and it distorted his perspective and hardened his heart towards God. So I wonder if there are feelings maybe of jealousy or bitterness in your own heart this morning. Is there a sense that I'm I'm missing out on the good life? Whatever that might look like. Or it's not worth it to follow God. I've been living for God in this way and this is, this is all it means. This is the, what, what I'm experiencing in my life because maybe you find yourself in pain this morning. It could be financially, emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationally. There's not prosperity in any way. There's only difficulty. There's not joy in your life, it seems. There's only pain. But you look at friends or you look at families, everybody has smiles on their face and you say, I'm missing out. Or your heart starts to harden against God. Or maybe you hear about your coworkers telling all about their extravagant weekends and you say, I'm missing out on that type of good life. Maybe you've made significant decisions in life because of your desire to follow Jesus, how you use your time, jobs that you've taken, relationships that you've stayed committed to but you're experiencing difficulty and you're experiencing pain. You're maybe experiencing persecution because of those decisions to follow Christ. And you're wondering, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? You've lived an obedient life. You've committed yourself to the church, but you're faced with the prospect of a failing body. Life does not match up in your mind. I'm being obedient. Others are living in rebellion and they're living in a carefree life, not experiencing the pains of this world. What do we do when we find ourselves in this same very situation as the psalmist in Psalm 73? Where do we go? God has the answer. I'm so thankful for the rest of this psalm, verses 16 through 28, because it shows us where we go. It shows us what we do. Let me read through verses 16 and 17. Verse 17 makes all the difference. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. There's a distorted perspective in the hardened heart as he's filled with jealousy and bitterness at those in the world. But he enters into the sanctuary. He draws near before God in worship. And God restores his perspective and begins restoring and transforming his heart, as we'll see in the rest of these verses. 
Drawing near to God and his presence shapes and transforms us as we enter into the sanctuary. That's what Psalm 73 is pointing us to. And it's giving us a picture of restored perspective as we're going to see that in the rest of these verses that can be summed up in kind of four words. Humility, eternity, grace, and incomparable. We'll start with this in verse 18, eternity. Verses 18 through 20. It says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, you rouse yourself and you despise them as phantoms. Eternity. As he draws near to God in the sanctuary, into God's presence in worship, in honesty with God, the bitterness and jealousy starts to be cleared out and he starts to see eternity. And he starts to see really that life without God actually is empty and actually ends in ruin. Tom Brady, he's one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play football. And he's had success in football. He's had success outside of football. And in one interview, he says this. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people will say, hey, man, you've reached it. You've reached your goal. You've reached your dreams in life. And he thinks to himself, there's got to be more than this. I mean, I'm 27. What else is there for me? See, life without God will never ultimately and truly satisfy us or fulfill us. It's going to leave us empty. It's not just empty. Life without God is going to end in ruin, just like when we wake up from a long sleep and a dream is over like that. That's how he's describing life, that it will quickly end, things will pass, and judgment will come to those who are not with God who do not trust in God, to those who are living in rebellion towards God and resistance towards God. This psalm is saying, hey, don't lose sight of eternity. But second thing, humility, verse 21. When my soul was embittered, the psalmist says, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Humility, as he draws near to God in his presence in the sanctuary, he starts to see himself rightly. He starts to see the way that he's been treating God in ignorance, like a fool, like a beast, he calls himself. He's full of bitterness, not living in wisdom, and he starts to see his own sin. He starts to see his own heart condition. But it happened as a result of drawing near before God that he sees eternity, things in light of eternity, and he starts to see himself and see his own sin and see his own need for God. It causes a deep humility. But in verse 30, 23, we see grace. We see grace. Nevertheless, it says, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Nevertheless, how wonderful are those words right there. That even though he sees his heart condition rightly, he sees his, his beastly sin, he says, nevertheless, I am with God. God holds me. God guides me. I will be near to God. Puritan Thomas Goodwin describes a man walking with his, his child down the street 
And then all of a sudden, this father out of love picks up his child and hugs him and embraces him and kisses him and showers his love upon his child and sets him down and they walk off together. And he says, in a lot of ways, that's, that's God pouring out his love upon us to reaffirm in our hearts and our souls that we are his children, to affirm in us of his great love for us by the power of the Spirit. And in some ways, that's what's happening here in Psalm 73, but in a deeper way, it's not just a child walking along happily. It's a child who's walking in bitterness and frustration towards his father, yet still that father reaches down and says, nevertheless, you are still with me, and you hold me, and you keep me, and he's guiding us. God still meets the psalmist with grace and with mercy, even though he's been acting in ignorance and like a beast towards God. Don't lose sight of eternity or your sin, but don't lose sight of God's grace towards us. But lastly, this final word in verses 25 and 26, I'll read that out. It says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This final word describing a restored perspective is incomparable. He sees that life with God is incomparable. No matter where he goes, he goes to the heavens, no matter what he experiences on earth, he sees nothing compares to life with God. Pastor John Piper, he's famous for this quote where he says, if you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had, all the food you ever liked, all the leisurely activities that you ever wanted, no human conflict or natural disasters, could you be satisfied in heaven if Christ were not there? And Psalmist says, surely not, because there's, no, there's nothing that can compare to God and life with him. No matter where I go, no matter what I'm confronted with, nothing can compare. His perspective as a result of drawing near into the presence of God is turned upside down. And we see a restored perspective. We see a transformed heart and transformed desires in Asaph. You know, he, he looks out at the independence and the prosperity and the indulgence of the arrogant. And his jealousy rising up in his heart will no longer no longer is he missing out no he has something that's of incomparable worth God his relationship with God it's like Matthew 13 the man who found a treasure in a field and in his joy he went and sold all that he had and bought that field because of the treasure that was there he looks at the life of rebellion and resistance against God that seems to be free from the pains of life. And he says, is it worth it to follow God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because of God's incomparable worth. But what's this catalyst for this change and this transformation and this restoration of this perspective? What's drawing near before God? God is doing this work. God is restoring this perspective. God is transforming the heart of the psalmist and can do the very same thing in our life. Asaph draws near to God in worship. Drawing near to God in the sanctuary, he sees eternity rightly. He sees his own sin. He sees God's grace. And he sees God's worth and value. And for him, the tabernacle, that was the sanctuary. That's where God's people went to worship. 
That's where God's people went to offer sacrifices for sin as the priests went into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice for the people. This is where he came to worship God. And he came and his perspective was restored and his heart was transformed. But what does that mean for us? Living in light of the coming of Jesus. But when Jesus stepped onto the scene, we find out that Jesus is the true tabernacle and that Jesus is the true priest. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Well, we now draw near to God through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. We have total, full, complete access to God. And we can draw near to him daily. I was talking with somebody after the first service and he said, we draw near to Christ when we first become a Christian through faith in him. But over the life and the course of a Christian, we daily and regularly need to continue to draw near to God through Jesus this aspect of daily drawing near to the Lord to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And don't we see that so clearly in Psalm 73? Asaph entering into the sanctuary in worship, drawing near, and his heart is transformed and his perspective is shaped and he sees life with God rightly. Now as we in our life, we're tempted maybe towards jealousy, towards towards bitterness, maybe feeling as though we're missing out, maybe feeling as though it's not worth it. What is this call for us to respond to this passage? How do we apply this in 2016 as the new year rolls around? Well, just like we said, it's to draw near before God in his presence. I think there's a personal response and a corporate response. First, personally, what does it look like for us to draw near before God? Well, it's prayer. We have total access to God. We need to draw near to God daily in prayer. Pastor Andy Davis describes prayer in this way as the furnace for a blacksmith, is that the furnace is hissing hot. And then he puts in this, this flat, cold, black iron that's pressed into the fire. And minutes later, it's steaming hot and ready to be molded and ready to be shaped and ready to be hammered into its form. And that's like time in prayer with the Lord is that we enter into God's presence and it shapes and transforms us and molds us and stokes the desires of our heart for him above all things. We can daily draw near to God in prayer. That's a personal response for each and every one of us, those who are in Christ. But there's a corporate response. And the corporate response is to do what we're doing right here, right now. Drawing near to God as God's people, gathering together, seeking the Lord in prayer, seeking the Lord as we listen to God's word, the Lord's Supper. We have at the end of our psalm in 73, it says, but as for me, it was good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. There is this corporate nature of telling one another about who God is, what God has done, and drawing near together before the throne of grace through Christ. There is a personal response and a corporate response to daily and regularly draw near to God 
so that our perspectives might be restored, so that our hearts might be transformed and our desires might be stoked so that we might treasure him above all things. That's what we see in 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell all of your works. Those who trust in and seek other things other than God, they will be far from God. But those who trust in and find their refuge and seek the Lord and draw near to God through Christ will be near God now and in eternity. Well, Asaph, he was a godly man who wrestled with God about his relationship with God and had a distorted perspective in a hardened heart and yet he drew near before God in his presence and had a restored, transformed heart and vision. You know, Pastor Dave, he always says that many times we walk into this place, some of us with very full hands and very full hearts and others of us walk in here with very empty hands and empty hearts. But my prayer is that as we draw near before the throne together in song, through the word, in prayer, that we would walk out together in a sense with full hearts saying, verse 25 and 26, that whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's a beautiful psalm. And we get to end our time here this morning by responding to God by singing. And we get to sing this song, Jesus, draw me ever nearer. And I'm just going to read out these words here. It says, Jesus, draw me ever nearer as I labor through the storm. You have called me to this passage and I'll follow though I'm worn. May this journey bring a blessing. Let's pray together. God, we know that we are often tempted to live in jealousy or live in bitterness, but I pray that as we come to you, that you would restore us, our vision, our perspective, transform our hearts, stoke our desires so that we see your beauty and your worth that is above all things, that we would see eternity rightly that we would see our own sin, that we would be humbled before you and see our need for you and yet you meet us with grace and you draw us to yourself. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm 73 and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.